In this episode of the Brown Body Podcast, I'm joined by Matt Tometz, who's a sports performance coach and sports science coordinator at TC Boost Sports Performance. You might have heard of TC Boost before. They're known for speed and agility development, and they've worked with, you know, small casual groups like the Chicago Bears and Chicago Cubs and D1 athletes and Olympians and very high profile clientele before but they also work with clients of all ages to help develop athleticism and speed. Matt has a speed development background and a fascination for data, so it's his daily challenge to combine the art of coaching with the science of data for his athletes, which range from all ages and all sports. Outside of the facility, Matt creates educational content for coaches and athletes aiming to give the tool of autonomy for their own decision-making and training. For more on Matt, you can find his podcast at the Talking Shop Podcast, and you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Coach Big Toe. He actually explains why he has that unique name in the episode. He also has a website, which you can find at matttometz.com. Before we get to the episode, I'm going to give a quick word to one of our sponsors. Matt, welcome to the show. Excited to have you. Fantastic. Thank you very much for, for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to talk about training and athletes and all things we love. So let's do it. Yeah. So for those who don't know you, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, where you've been, how you got to where you are now? Fantastic. So currently, I'm a sports performance coach and our sports science coordinator at TC Boost Sports Performance, which is in a suburb about 20 minutes north of Chicago, where we are known for all things speed and agility, but predominantly our linear speed development. So my boss has been in business 20 plus years. My mentor has been doing it for 10 plus. I've been in and out of TC Boost in between school for the last five years. And now that I've graduated, I've been full-time for about a year and a half. So that's kind of what I currently do. Uh, I started way back when walking on at the baseball team at Truman State University, had an awesome little four-year career there. Got my master's at TCU down in Texas doing sports science for the women's beach volleyball team. Got my thesis published in JSCR. I helped out the women's tennis team as well. And then COVID happened and the rest is history, but I'm a podcast host, I'm a freelance videographer our YouTube channel, uh, typing out all this stuff. I was like, dang, I do a lot, but I also feel like I do nothing. But so that's a little bit about uh, where I am and where I've been. That explains why you were up at like midnight editing our little outline here, huh? You oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, oh, you're, expo- you're exposing me. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of respect for people like that. I, uh, I don't know how you juggle all that. And you're definitely a man of many talents. Now, you said you played uh, D2 baseball there. Were you pitcher? I think it was. Yes, yes, yes. So I was a little sidearm lefty. I was a setup guy, lefty specialist for those that know baseball lingo, but it was crazy. I went from walk-on to D2 World Series in the matter of August to May, my freshman year. Wow. What was that like? Oh my gosh. So, well, I I went to Truman because that was the right school for me. It had the education. It was the right size, right location. And then I ended up making a team, but then coach said, well, you're going to redshirt. And I was like, well, I'm the second best freshman you got. So that's fine, whatever. And then two kids got hurt like a quarter of the way in the season. So he lifted my red shirt and then I ended up playing a ton shocker, but um, we just got hot at the right time. And then the next thing we know, we're at the USA baseball complex in North Carolina. And uh, there's actually a, a few guys that I played against at that kind of tournament, I guess, on TV as pros. And it's like, oh, wow. man, what am I, what, what, <laughs> what am I doing with, with my life? But so that was just a, a crazy four years and I'm just super grateful. Like if I had not had made the team, everything would have been so different. So very for sure. For that. And that kind of lets you relate to athletes too, I'm sure, because you understand what that life is like. You played four years at college ball. You know what that life on the road and the late nights and early mornings and the toll that training takes on your body is like from personal experience. So I'm sure that kind of helps you shape and mold your uh, athletic programs for athletes as well. It, it, it definitely helps with the athletes because I get to share stories and relate and say, hey, I'm, I'm more similar to you than, than this similar, but also on the on the parent side. So in the private side, you know, I have to sell myself. I have a brand. People pay to train with me. It's not the other way around like other sides, but it, it sucks, but it is what it is. But like, it's just valid, ha- you know, being an ex-college athletes and it 
it, it sucks. I, I get the benefit of it because I did play college sports. But if a, if a parent is reading, you know, the bios of all of our coaches, and there's one person that played a college sport, and it happens to be the sport that their kid plays versus someone that just played at high school, like, yeah, so man, Man, I'm, I I haven't chatted about Truman Baseball in a, a long time, but it was <laughs> it was an, an awesome four years. So go dogs. There you go. So um, <clears throat> with that, too, you kind of mentioned about things that kind of help selling yourself and your services. I've noticed that TC Boost has kind of been around the block, so to speak. They've worked with the Chicago Cubs. They've worked with Olympians, D1 athletes, you name it. Could you tell us a little bit more about TC Boost? Because this was something, you know, I wasn't overly familiar with. I'm from small town in Pennsylvania. Of course, I'm not going to be familiar with something in the Midwest. So what can you tell us about TC Boost? Fantastic. Well, I, I can only take actually probably none of that credit of all of those elite people that we do train. So our typical clientele is probably most private sides, middle school, high school, we go as young as nine years old, and then up to pros and stuff like that. But majority of our clientele, what we're really passionate about is that like developmental LTAD serious training, but still kind of low training age. Um, but every year for the last 20 years, my boss has done NFL combine stuff. I was fortunate to have helped him out as well. Tom, man, Tommy has so many stories. My boss, like, it's just so funny that the owner of the Cubs, he was his like just personal trainer, just like, you know, adult workouts. And then the, the guy walks in and goes, Hey, I, I just bought the Cubs. <laughs> so there's like, so my boss has trained so, so many people, like he was like the whole bears O-line would come in the off season to TC boost. And there's like a printout of the article, the newspaper article from, I don't even know how long. So a lot of that is, is my boss. He's trained, you know, like there's stuff all over our office. And then just like the the foyer area of articles and stuff, but yeah, some Olympic bobsled stuff. Um, my, my mentor has been there for, for 10 plus years. He, he's done a, a lot of that stuff. I've been fortunate enough to work with uh, a player in the WNBA and, um, and then helping out with the NFL combine stuff. But um, it's, it's funny when people want to get into the private side or, or learn more, they think that that's like all the private side is it's like, no, that's just the cool stuff. Don't worry. It's cool. But <laughs> Um, but yeah, so TC Boost does a, a lot of awesome stuff. And um, I've, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of awesome coaches throughout on and off since summer 2016. Um, TC Boost could could blow up. We're just all crazy busy trying to do our, our own thing, but also for TC Boost. The, 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 the private side for those aren't in it. It's, it's quite a different beast, but TC Boost is great. It definitely is a different beast. I can definitely attest to that. But no, that sounds awesome. You get to work with some high profile clientele and bring the knowledge that you gain uh, when working with them to other athletes as well. And one of the things that I think we are really going to highlight in this episode is there's this misconception amongst coaches and even some trainers anymore that they can't coach speed that athletes are either fast or they're not, especially young athletes. Now, you actually specialize in coaching speed, and we both know that you can actually coach it. We've both worked with high-level athletes that, you know, that's what we're paid for. So when it comes to kind of what factors influence an athlete's sprinting speed, what comes to mind for you? What determines how fast someone is going to run? Mm -hmm. So creating some some kind of context for this conversation, just so kind of we're all on the same page, some operational definitions, stuff like that. Yeah. So so first, the, the question becomes, can you become the fastest or can you become faster? Because usually people think, oh, you know, I, I, I can't be the, the fastest person ever. Da, da, da. Well, there's only one fastest person ever. That's kind of how that works. Yeah. <laughs> but I, so no, you probably cannot. But I think everyone can definitely get faster to get, be faster than what they are right now through I guess my next definition. So the definition of speed training or, or, or speed development. And it's so interesting having gone through about two months now of weekly staff meetings about literally all things speed. The first meeting was figuring out like, what do we mean when we say we develop speed? And it was so interesting. Like we, we throw this term around and that's what we do, but none of us had a very like concise definition of it. So this is what we came up with. It's a work in progress, but it's closer than further. So speed training training of sprint mechanics so the shapes patterns and rhythms 
training of sprint mechanics and maximizing force vectors across starting positions, acceleration, and transitioning to max velocity sprinting that leads to significant and measurable improvements in speed. So that sounds kind of like a lot, but I could go through each component of that and talk about kind of how we address all of those. So first is the sprint mechanics. So if their body can't be in the right positions doing the optimal things, whether it's whether it's the the shape of or pattern of low heel recovery, where whether it's the rhythm of the change of ground contact time to flight time when you transition from acceleration to top speed or any of those things, they're not going to get faster. You have to maximize force vectors. And we're definitely all about simple language and force vectors sounds kind of fancy, but it's actually the most concise term we have because force vector has a magnitude and a direction. So we've got to hit the ground hard, but also hit it in the right direction because then it hits us back. So the mechanics bleeds into maximizing our force, how much and where, and then we have our start. We accelerate first 10 yards ish transitioning up to max velocity, running at max velocity, but the key in speed development and speed training is significant and measurable improvements in speed. So whenever we say speed development, that is kind of what we're chatting about. So how does, how does all that sound? That sounds pretty good. I like the definitions that you present there because we throw these terms around, right? Speed, agility, quickness, top speed, max velocity. And sometimes they just all get kind of jumbled together and we can't really, you know, determine what we're training without first understanding, Hey, what are we even talking about right now? Uh, give an example to that. When I think of agility, I think of the ability to change directions quickly. When we think of uh, speed, as you just mentioned, we think about all the movement factors, right? The kinematics that go into running. So if I don't have the optimal kinematics to even run in the first place, my agility, my ability to change direction is going to be impacted because of that. However, if we just use the term speed and agility synonymously, as most coaches do, right? They're speed and agility coaches. Most people just don't understand that distinction there. So I think setting that ground and framework is kind of a great starting point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, if the, the listener can take something away, it would be whatever you, you say you do or whatever is your marketing point or selling point. It's almost like an, it's not really an elevator pitch because more of an operational definition, but if someone says, Oh, like you do speed development, I'd be like, Oh, this is what I do. Or if it's like, I'm known for my injury reduction. Well, yes, we know you don't get injured, but there's a little bit more to that. Yep. So I think having that, like there's, there's terms like leadership and culture, this is kind of different stuff, but the, the people that, cause I've done some leadership stuff with Jeremy Boone and, um, and Steve, like people don't have definitions of those terms mm -hmm. and they get thrown around all the time. Um, so that's kind of where they got inspired to be clear and concise about kind of what we mean, but operational definitions, I think are so valuable because it really gives like, it gives guidance to how I talk about it, the words I use, how I structure my social media posts, because that's what I'm trying to do is develop speed. So I think just context definition, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, I think is so valuable. But uh, I, I guess to, to kind of continue with the question you asked, what factors impact speed? I think that the first is, is puberty. Mm -hmm. And it's, it sucks when I get my 10, 11 year olds that have been training for like a year or so, and they're super into it and they go, how do I get faster? And I'm like, hit puberty. Like you're, <laughs> you're in here twice a week. You look really good. Like there was a, a video. Um, we had a zoom with Stu McMillan. Who's one of the, the, the head, I think he's the CEO of Altus. And it was like a continuing education. My boss knows Stu. And we were just showing him videos and he was kind of just breaking them down. And there was one, um, like a, a 12 year old that we trained, we trained him for three, four years. My boss has, and, and Stu goes, I mean, this looks really good. Like, don't mess them up, you know? Um, so I think puberty, especially with my clientele is, is the biggest thing. It's so interesting working with like nine to like high schoolers predominantly is that their biological age versus their training age versus their chronological age can be at such different spots. And it's so interesting seeing the impact of like literal physiology on their ability to be fast and coordinated and kind of put it all together. Um, so I would say that that is probably the, the biggest one, at least with my clientele. 
And then one that I think is also definitely underrated. So I'll give a little anecdote and I'd love for your, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. So All right. we had two high school basketball teams come in to do a little combine. So we did vertical jump, broad jump, acceleration test, top speed test. And they all ran decently fast times for having like garbage technique, you know, just kind of from the naked eye. So they looked really bad doing it. But if I showed you all the times on paper, like, honestly, like when I was reflecting, I was like, well, these guys are actually like kind of fast. Mm -hmm. So if you had to guess why two basketball teams were able to put out decent scores, times having awful technique and mechanics, why would you think that that is? Well, to me, I just look at the basic principle that structure does not always dictate function. So just because something looks bad doesn't necessarily mean it is. And I like to go to the classic example of LeBron James. If you've ever Googled LeBron James, type in LeBron James and then follow it with the word foot. He <laughs> has the worst bunions I have ever seen. And you look at the structure of his feet and you say, there's no way this guy is walking pain-free. And yet we know him as LeBron James, one of the greatest basketball players uh, to ever play the game. I'm not going to say the greatest because that's going to get into a whole debate and debacle that we don't need to go down. But structure overall does not correlate strongly to function. Uh, and going off of that, we even see people in the gym different times. We look at them do something and it's like, wow, they're compensating a lot with movement from this joint instead of that joint, as we'd normally expect. And yet the movement still looks clear and crisp, and they're still able to load it heavily with decent technique, even though they're getting the motion from a slightly different area. So that's kind of my interpretation of it is just because it doesn't look textbook and clear and crisp doesn't necessarily mean it's dysfunctional, so to speak. Definitely spot on. So going back to our definition is sprint mechanics and force vectors. Yep. So they don't have the mechanics, but they have the force vectors because they're so bouncy. So they're able to get the job done somehow. And it's so interesting because we'll have some athletes that walk in day one that are already like pretty fast and bouncy and athletic and they look bad, but have good times. And then consequently, we have athletes, mostly baseball players. Uh, so sad that <laughs> they train with us for like a year or so and they look so good but they just like don't have the the times yet just because they're not bouncy and athletic and stiff and all of those things so and then another example we had a girl who was an irish step dancer and she looks so athletic in top speed work because she knows how to be stiff she has good ankles she knows how to like organize everything to contract and relax just with the sport of Irish step dance that she did for like eight years. Right. So I'll add that on as like a second factor, um, whether it's people just have it from their sport or whether it just is. So if someone is super bouncy and stiff, like basketball, it's, it's stiffness, bouncy jump training, even not it's not really sprinting, but you're doing all of those things for two plus hours, five, six days a week, you know, versus a, a baseball player that is in here one hour, twice a week. So I think stiffness and just bounce, like just bounce is so hard to come by because it happens over a long period of time, but it is so important. So biological age slash puberty and then bounciness, I would say are two factors that one can't really be trained. One kind of can, but probably um, not that those are the only ones, but probably ones that people don't really think about. Right. And going off of stiffness. I have seen ways to train that a little bit. I know a lot of people go right to the hill and, you know, go to like hill sprints and jumps up and down the hill, broad jumps, uh, and use that to kind of stiffen the Achilles tendon a little bit as kind of their rationale, they say. Um, so is there anything else that you typically look at for training stiffness or is it just kind of a, Hey, you'll get it as you play the sport. So it's, it's tough because the, the volume of stiffness training and just bounce training, it's tough to come by without a sport like basketball. But what we can do, so this is such a cliche answer, but like if you want to get <laughs> stiffer at running in top speed, you got to do top speed sprints. You know, like you experience four to five times your body weight when you touch the ground um, when running at, at top speed. But 
I think being intentional about adding in plyometrics, you know, if, if you're lifting and your first tricep of exercises is like a, a heavy leg, a med ball throw, and then a jump, we'll make sure that that's a plyometric. And if we go back to definitions, a plyometric is a rapid eccentric followed by rapid concentric. You know, people think like box jumps or like where you sit on the box and then jump up or stuff like that is a plyo. Well, it's no rapid eccentric. So whether it's like repeat pogo hops, single leg going over hurdles, just this idea of like contract, relax, bounce more than a few in a row, just to like kind of put that all together um, with relatively straight legs. So it's more on the ankles, but also decreasing the ground contact time because anything less than 250 milliseconds is going to be the fast stretch shortening cycle. So I think if you can't get that two hour volume of basketball practice, be intentional about where you can, you know, add those things in that's definitely going to add up over time. Right. And you uh, mentioned ground contact time. I know that's something I believe that you actually measure in your uh, coaching, right? You have a, like a platform, I think it was that you can actually track how long, yeah, yeah, how long someone contacts the ground. So you can actually track that over time to determine progress. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the, we test three jumps twice a week. So depending on the combo of the day, vertical jump. So if no one has a jump mat, it's a, it's a uh, contact grid mat. So it's actually pretty simple. It just measures either however long you're on it or however long you're in the air. So when you leave and come back down, so you can calculate a lot of things from that. So, um, we do vertical jump. So it's just flight time, you know, physics divided by two, cause you have gravity. That's your jump height. We have our four jump RSI. So hands on your hips, jump as fast as you can and as high as you can four times in a row. And then it takes the average jump height and then the average uh, ground contact time puts it together to give you a score. And then we also measure our broad jump one or two times a week. But the, and then we can also use the jump mat. I actually have a YouTube video re reviewing it if, if, um, because I think technology is important. But so all the things that I'm an expert, just kidding, I hate that term, that I have experience using. Right. Um, like the jump mat, I think I did our, our fusion timing lasers um, just to chat about my experiences and stuff. Or whenever we do actually plyo work, when we go from like a 12 inch box to the ground to like a 30, you can jump on and off the mat and it tells you how fast you went. Um, but you know, when, when we're sprinting in, in top speed, we're on the ground for like 0.12 seconds, which you can measure with dart fish if people don't have dart or don't know what that is. It's, it's like a super slow-mo, you can draw on it, measure stuff app on your phone. Um, that's like 0.12 seconds. You know, the fastest we can do on two legs during our like depth jumps, for example, I think the fastest I've seen is like 0.14 or something like that. And that's on two legs, not one. Right. But I think being intentional, knowing that ground contact and stiffness and time, I mean, that's impulse. You, you take the time down, et cetera, et cetera. But being intentional about that, that's a factor that we're going for. How can we intentionally kind of get after that? Right. So with that, it's not just being able to run fast, but it's also having the ability to carry that over to your specific sport. So if we're thinking uh, lacrosse, for example, it's the ability to run fast and optimize those factors while carrying a lacrosse stick, mm -hmm. while holding a ball. And same mm -hmm. with soccer for that matter, or field hockey or any other sport. So is there any way that you've found to kind of optimize the specific adaptation to impose demand of sprinting to carry over to the sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so first, although this isn't directly part of the question, when we talk about carryover in sport and why sprinting is valuable, regardless of the sport, if it's something like, like basketball, where even a full length court, was it 92, 94 feet like that wouldn't even be long enough for like a true flying 10 um, or a sport that doesn't really sprint that much as is but so speed reserve so if we can raise our ceiling if we can get faster well our 50 percent is now higher but also so we'll just say we go from 10 miles an hour to 12 so our 50 percent goes from uh five miles an hour to six but then also if we want to run at five miles an hour with our new ceiling it's relatively less percentage so it's less effort so that's why there's value in sprinting regardless of the sport. But to go back to the original question, that is not within my scope of practice, specifically doing it with a lacrosse stick, a basketball, a soccer ball. I've seen people 
do like resisted banded stuff with basketballs and whatnot. But I would argue that it is more valuable for us actually not to do those things. Mm -hmm. Because if you trust that they're getting enough volume of their sport and based on how my athletes tell me they feel, um, because they're always fresh every session we have and never have (laughs) way too much conditioning or practice like who what 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 sport coach would just run them for no reason right but if you trust that they're getting enough volume of that you know two hours a day five six times a week i would argue that it's more valuable for us actually not to do any of that specific stuff right because they're already getting enough of it externally Mm -hmm. so there is value in it but relative to what i'm qualified to do what i'm specialized at um, if, if a sports specific coach wants to do that, at practice great. I wouldn't call that speed training. That would just be resisted dribbling, I guess. Um, but when people want to get super, super sports specific, well, do they need more of that? Probably not. So actually my, my value. So for basketball players can be hitting top speed work for baseball players. For example, if you want to see the funniest thing in the world, have two baseball players go one-on-one on like the agility tag juke drill because they never get that stimulus of reacting off someone else. You play defense, you see where the ball is going, you turn and run in a straight line. It's never like this continuous pattern and stuff. So almost putting all of your skills that you could do in a session and say, what are they not getting on a consistent basis? And then do that. Um, so that kind of answered your question. Kind of Yeah, that makes sense. But how does and- that sound? I, I personally agree with that because I've trained lacrosse players and soccer players and that sort of thing in the past. And while I think from potentially a rehab side of things, it could be beneficial to uh, incorporate the stick work or the ball work or something like that. And right. If someone comes in after an ACL tear and you're determining their eligibility and ability as a say physical therapist or physician or something like that uh, to return to sport. Yeah. I think that could be valuable. But as a strength coach where your uh, focus is on either increasing strength, increasing speed, increasing athletic performance, you have to look at the kind of bare athletic essentials, one. And two, I'll make the argument any day that the majority of the game and some of the more important parts of the game for any sport are not when you have the ball, but what you do when you don't have the ball. So soccer, basketball, field hockey, lacrosse, whatever you do, your movement and your ability to get up or down the field can literally change the outcome of the game. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the ability to get in the right position to even get the ball, then what are you training with the ball for in the first place? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, if if it's football, there's football or soccer, there's 22 people on the field. If it's basketball, there's 10 and only one of those people has the ball at, at at one time. And um, although I, I never played a, a field or court based sport, but like Fergus Conley, um, for those that know who he is, I, I like a quote he had where it's like, sport is just about either creating more space, which then gives you time, which then lets you display those sport specific skills. Or if you're on defense, it's about decreasing time and space to where you can, it's a fact, go get the ball. So I think that that's a great point where it's like, well, why are we going to spend 100% of our training session with a ball or whatever it may be? Where in a game, I don't know, maybe like under 10% of the time you actually have the ball. Right. Uh, so I think that's another like argument for the sport specificity. Well, how much of that sport, or I guess game, because practice, obviously you do more. But I think that's that's an awesome add-on going into their argument of like, let's do sports for sport. Where it's like, ah, I don't really know. Let's break down the numbers. So it makes total sense. Right. Now, when it comes to exercises you incorporate and drills you incorporate with your athletes, what are your kind of go-tos? You talked before about the broad jump and the four jump and the vertical jump that you do week, uh, twice a week. What do you do as kind of your training? Do you just do more of those same things? or? So we sprint. We sprint a lot and we sprint often and we measure it all the time to, mm-hmm. to give like the, the three bullet points. But so I guess I'll, I'll lay out a, a typical kind of session because yeah. we do almost everything every day and it's just different ratios of how much time we allocate for each depending on our emphasis. So a warm up, we're going to start with a mini band exercise or some specific activation, general movement, stability work, mechanics, and then like a, a plyo, put it all together full speed. So the, those are like our five categories for, 
a warm up, and then we'll measure our jumps for that day. That's anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. Gotcha. And then we're going to hit top speed every day, or sorry, top speed first, acceleration, and then agility slash change of direction. And this is just a one hour speed session. Our high schoolers lift for 30 minutes, but we'll just say an hour speed session. Top speed, acceleration, agility. Now, depending on what day it is, day one, acceleration focus, day two, top speed focus, and then day three is longer accelerations slash agility focus. So the reason why we do that is because if you had to guess on what day of the week, so let's say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, day one, day two, day three, what day would you guess that athletes typically PR? Uh, they probably PR on Monday after a weekend resting up and rejuvi rejuvenating if they're not in season. Because if they're in season, like football, for example, they're going to be playing on the weekends. So if they're in season and say we're going with that football example, if they play on the weekend and they have the week to kind of recover, then they'll probably PR on that Friday. Mm -hmm. So actually we see it on day two. Really? So, so that reasoning is correct, but because their body is fresh, but their nervous system is kind of asleep because they oh, probably okay. just took the last two days off. So that's why we, so acceleration. So yes, we're always trying to run fast, but acceleration, because it's, you know, not as ner nervous system, logically taxing or intensive. Yes. I just made up a word right there. I like it. Um, so we use day one as our acceleration focus, but also like a quote unquote priming day. I think that, that's the term Altus uses. Right. And then day two, we'll say Wednesday is our top speed. Our body's awake, not too taxed. And then um, for top speed on Wednesday and then day three, actually no top speed work or just a little bit longer accelerations because we didn't really hit like a 20 to 25 acceleration, but then also agility focus because all of the eccentrics of decelerating and changing direction is going to be the most soreness inducing. So we prime, we hit it super fast, and then we do our more muscularly taxing, challenging stuff. So that's how we break down a session and a week. So if if it's day one, you know, maybe we'll spend 2025 on our main block on acceleration, a little bit less on top speed, a little bit less on agility, but next kind of within our block of one speed component, we have three, or at least this is how I describe it. We have technique integration and then performance. So you have a technique drill, the main thing you want to work on for that day. So for top speed, let's say it's our ankle dribble series. So mm -hmm. this ability to cycle step over, you can integrate it. You can go a dribble to sprint. You can run over hurdles, whatever it may be. And then you got to perform. So that's just going to be a flying 10. So let's say you do two reps at each drill. You hit that twice. So two rounds of that. That's a lot of um, high quality mechanics work. Plus you're putting it all together and it gives some flow and rhythm to, to kind of the workout. So I guess I, I more said kind of how we do our training instead of specifics, but um do you want me to kind of keep going on the programming side or do you want some specific exercises? I got both prepared. I'd like to hear a little bit of both. In general, I use a very similar approach of isolate, integrate, and then function. Um, so I think it's interesting how, you know, we've never really trained athletes together. Or, you know, we have different certs and backgrounds and yet we use a somewhat similar model. But mm -hmm. yeah, keep going. Yeah, so speaking on that, how like, training for lifting and training for speed, if I break it down like that, it's actually more similar than, than dissimilar. And it's not to say that, that I'm doing anything crazy or new or fancy. No one has given an operational definition. No one has broken it down, not ever, but traditionally. So here's another example of how it's pretty similar to lifting. So in a traditional three-week block of lifting, it's going to be hypertrophy, GPP, strength, power, right? Mm-hmm. So here's how we structure our kind of three phases. If we have like, like nine weeks with someone skill acquisition, speed, strength, development, speed, realization, and those line up pretty, pretty good with a traditional kind of lifting approach. Right. And whenever we're in the weight room, that'll reflect that as well. So if it's our skill acquisition, a little bit more emphasis on tech. So we also do concurrent training, I guess, to put that term out there, because we're testing all the time. We're doing every skill all the time. It's just different ratios. So if it's skill acquisition, a little bit more rudimentary drills, a little bit more simple, still timing, but just more on like hitting our main foundations and our main uh, uh, patterns, rhythms, shapes, and then lifting is going to be a little bit less weight, a little bit more volume, maybe more complex work. 
um, which will self-limit the weight. And then we'll get into phase two where it's more. So I guess to kind of break everything down into ratios. So if we have our technique integration performance, phase one, more emphasis on the technique stuff. Phase two, speed strength development, that integration component is going to be a little bit bigger. So whether it's our resisted running, our full speed drill work, et cetera, et cetera. And then our lifting is going to be a, a little bit heavier, stuff like that. And then phase three, the emphasis is on this performance component or the speed, like putting it all together where it's going to be a lot more explosive stuff, lighter kind of sending it. So it, it makes total sense in theory when you kind of break it down like that. But I think it's so valuable to put actual words to it, like each mm -hmm. phase, so you can kind of help kind of wrap your head around it. So that's how we program a session, a block, um, or a phase of block, depending on whatever words you use, nine, 12 weeks. So yep. how's that? Yeah, I like that. Now, do you, in addition to the speed focus, do you add any kind of weight lifting or training to kind of help with the injury prevention side of things? Or is that something they do separately from their time with you? Yeah, so any lifting we do is to supplement our speed work. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to lift just to lift. And and here here's an interesting anecdote. So I have my USAW, I've been training for, I don't even know how long I do all of our speed stuff in my own workouts, which I think is super valuable, but I was working out one day and I was just like hang snatching and like 90 pounds. Um, and our intern walked over and he was like, yeah, I see, I see like our high schooler snatch, but like, that's how it's supposed to look, you know? <laughs> and, and I just thought it was so interesting because I do it well, I do a decent amount of weight. Um, but I run similar times, if not a little bit slower than our high school athletes. Like I think my flying 10, I PR like a one Oh eight and then there's kids like in the low one sub one. And it's like, it, it really just made me step back and realize it's like, well, like they're going to be faster than me on the field, but I can snatch better. But like, you don't need a snatch to be fast, but we're going for speed anyways. So it's just a really interesting kind of moment. Yeah. Um, interesting. So so everything we do is to make us faster. Now, I it, it is valuable because if we send an athlete to go play college sports, they're going to have a big, um, a big strength and conditioning component. So to ignore it all completely and say, have fun day one in college, oh man, they're back squat, deadlift, all these Olympic stuff, you know? So I think it's important and valuable to get that exposure, but we're not chasing the numbers just to chase it. Right. So how we structure a typical lifting block. So let's say for our high school class, our speed work 30 minute lift, we'll do something explosive. So um, a heavy lift, a med ball throw, and then a plyo. And then mm -hmm. you'll go through three or four times. You'll go through your main uh, leg lift for the day, plus like a core. You'll do your push pull and then an accessory and any kind of, so we're doing a little bit of everything all the time. And then just the ratios of that will, will, will kind of change. Right. Um, we had to completely change when COVID happened because just the flow of the weight room and stuff. So it's, it's morphed, but um, we have probably a majority of our athletes do no lifting with us, you know, whether they're training one-on-one -on -one or they actually sign up for the class and leave for the lift. They just, which we prorate, don't worry, they do, <laughs> but and they do just the, the, the speed work. So I think it, it's valuable. It's important, but at the end of the day, if it's not getting us faster, then it's, it's pretty tough to argue that we're allocating training time and we're allocating training load to things that aren't helping us accomplish our goal. Now, injury reduction, playing the long game that they're going to be lifting college, I, I think is super valuable as well, but taking a step back and asking like, if I only have 60 minutes, is it worth allocating X amount of time? Um, so that's kind of how we view lifting. Right. And I think that kind of highlights a slightly separate but still important discussion of you have to know your goal, because if your goal is to run faster, like you said, everything should support that goal. If it doesn't, then you're never going to reach that kind of outcome that you want, that best outcome. So while preventing injuries is important, you're getting a lot of the factors to prevent injury through training speed right? Because you focus on form and function and kinematics and you're loading tendons, you're loading joints, you're getting all the kind of factors that you want. And for those who, you know, I know someone's going to message me and argue on that, but I point to something like a single leg pistol squat. <clears throat> I've seen guys who can back squat, you know, three, 400 pounds, but they can't do a single leg pistol squat. Maybe they don't have the balance, the mobility, whatever. 
And if you can't perform on one leg, then why are you loading heavy on two, one? And two, you're matching your speed interventions to specific sport type movements like sprinting. So the specificity is better with something like a broad jump or a vertical jump or any kind of sprinting movement for sport than something like a back squat would be. Mm -hmm. um, so now I definitely follow you. And I also really like that you pointed out that you train everything together. It's not like a, hey, we're going to lift today, but we're only going to lift back or we're only going to lift, you know, chest and triceps because that's not how athletes train. That's not how sports are played. You know, they don't just use certain muscles at a time. It's everything working together across the kinetic chain synonymously. So the fact that your training matches that, to me, it just makes sense. Um, you know, and maybe that's just from training athletes and using that approach myself, or maybe it's just because, like I said, it's just kind of common sense. So I like all those kind of factors that you pointed out there when it came to why you lift, but don't lift with athletes. Mm -hmm. Going back to our, our definition of speed training is that's our context for this conversation. You know, the, it ends with leads to significant and measurable improvements in speed. You know, so if it's not helping those times get better, it's it's tough to say I'm going to continue to give time and training stress to that thing that's not helping us get to our goal. So I think it's it's super important to be crystal clear. But going back to kind of the whole kind of concurrent training and stuff. So when I went down my my bodybuilding rabbit hole, I guess when I was in Texas for two years, I learned so much, and it's actually helped me out a lot as a coach now from Mike Isertel and the Renaissance Periodization stuff. And Eric Helms and 3DMJ, if you're familiar with those people, but talking about because bodybuilding is it's all volume and it's all ratios of volume and how you organize your training and volume per body part and stuff like that. So if you were to put all of your training economy in one day to acceleration, or let's say like a leg day, you are taking away those things because it's going to take more time to recover for the next training session. And it's so facto, you're also increasing the likelihood of injury for those specific body parts. So if we had one day where it was only top speed work, like for, for 50, 60 minutes, it was just everything relative to top speed. Chances are you might not have both hammies at the end of the day because um, top speed running is the most challenging on the hamstrings. But if we break it down over two, three training days, then we're going to give it that dose of challenge, but not too much. So, you know, rest, the only point of rest is to set us up for another awesome stimulus. We'll recover and then set us up to do it again. Right. But if we hit it so hard, then we have to rest way too long. And it's just, so I, I think in the context of sport, which is, which is very important, I think it makes total sense in bodybuilding, but because the athlete is going to be doing all of these skills, at all at the same time, you can't have one specific skill or muscle kind of tapped out because you did too much. And here's a, a, a phrase or a concept that, that I think is really important going into this kind of injury reduction conversation, because the body's an anti-fragile system. So if you have a fragile, fragile system, you give it stress and it breaks. If you have a robust system, you give it stress and it kind of just stays the same. And an anti-fragile system actually gets stronger with stress. So what's interesting or tough about the human body is whatever you, whatever you give it can also break it. Right. So is squatting bad? No, but squatting the wrong way. Yes. So in an anti-fragile system, stressors make it stronger, but no stressors make it weaker. But what's tough about athletes is they're going to get stress anyways, because they play their sport. That's kind of what makes them an athlete. So we know that they're going to have some sort of stress, but we don't want to eliminate stress because then that'll make them weaker, but then, then they'll be weak going to the competition. So how do you strategically and intelligently implement that stress to make it stronger to prepare them for the sport? So getting into the, the question about injury reduction is arguably our entire training is our injury reduction system. Now I can say we do our mini band series every day to help knee, knee valgus and stuff like that and ACLs, which is important, but that we do very intentional acceleration work. We resist it as well. We do a lot of top speed work at different, you know, ratios of volume over time. 
we do intentional agility and change of direction work. So if we change if we break down change of direction, linear decel, unilateral cutting, bilateral cutting, multi-directional, and then we can also throw curve running in there as well. Mm-hmm. That we're we're giving them exposures to all of this, um, all these stimuli, all these movement patterns at different, you know, the the first block is going to be a little bit more foundational, more technique work. The second block is going to be maybe some resisted agility, stuff like that. And then phase three is going to be live, full speed, tag, chase, stuff like that. And then we just cycle all that over again. So we're experienced, we're exposing them to all of these movement challenges, movement, um, movements that they'll have to do in the game. So we're building up this anti-fragile system by giving them things that are specific, but not specific. Um, if we just want to make the premise that injuries mostly happen in agility and change of direction. Mm-hmm. To build them up so that way when they get that stress in game because that's what makes them an athlete that it's not their first time seeing it. right right that makes sense sorry i'm my head is just kind of going a million miles an hour right now because here i am sitting here i train athletes i've got tons of training certifications i've got a degree in exercise science and i'm finishing a doctorate in physical therapy and i'm like where was all of this kind of knowledge along that line because you know we're throwing out terms here and i'm even struggling to keep up and i'm someone who's well versed in the realm of exercise so it's amazing to me anyways just sitting here right now about how much this is missing in programs right and you know that speaks volumes to you and your education that you've acquired and what you've learned but it also speaks to the fact that if you're someone who wants to get faster you really need to check with who you, who is training you first, because not everyone is going to know and understand, you know, how to coach speed. You know, you might throw like sled push and band resisted sprints at someone and say, yeah, you know, I'm a speed coach, but that's not actually what speed development is, as we've mentioned time and time again. So I'm, I'm keeping up with you, but I'm just also like, wow, this is, this is some major stuff here. Dr. Braun, let's go. Um, <laughs> Not yet. I've, I've definitely had I've definitely had those same thoughts. And I, I always say because I interned at TC Boost summer 2016. So that was the summer in between my sophomore and my junior year of undergrad. Right. And I always say that my internship ruined the last two years of school for me. Because I saw in real life that that's not how like the, the stuff you learn in the classroom, that's not how it works in real life. Right. So I think that there's so much to be said about having just coached a ton of athletes. What has yeah. made me the best coach has not been all of the, the webinars that I've signed up for, all of the books that I totally have read for sure on my bookshelf behind me, or the, the certs that I've done. It's been being a full-time coach, coaching nine-year-olds up to pros six days a week for the last year and a half. Now, not everyone has that opportunity, but I think it's, it's so interesting, and this is a, a different conversation, but those people that that have their social media that they're the expert, this expert, that just like, they don't train, like they don't train anyone or maybe they do, but they don't post about it. So I, I, I think it's, it's tough to say, all right, where am I trying to go with this? <laughs> so to having just actually done a ton of it now, now, do I think I'm a great speed coach? I think I'm better than I was a year ago. Do I think I'm as good as people that have done it for 10, 20 years? Absolutely not. But just like to have actually like been there, done that. Whether it's like, so, so here's an, another example about this idea of experience. So when I was looking for jobs, the last, you know, 80 plus applications, hundred plus people on the phone, that's a whole different conversation. It was so tough because when I was networking with these people applying for jobs, I was just speaking on theory. I was speaking on what I learned in the classroom, what I learned in a textbook. I didn't have any actual stories or anecdotes about me having been there, done that. So it, it, it sucks about like, you just got to accumulate that one, two years of like actually having done it and stuff. But looking back, it's like, I wouldn't have hired me. I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> so I think it's, it's so huge to like, just do it. Like have been there, done that, have some stories under your belt. Like I, I, I wanted to get way further along with having never done anything ever. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was me being optimistic or delusional or some combination of both, but um, speed, speed can be trained. Um, there are specific ways to do it. 
Um, but I've, I've definitely had those same thoughts. So you are not alone, my friend. <laughs> and I'm sure there's many people listening now that are also just like, wow, I've, I've had this all wrong. And, you know, mistakes are part of the learning process, right? You know, you have to try something and fail at it before you can ever get it right. Um, mm -hmm. I like to use the Thomas Edison example that he had over 1000, I think it was over 1080 patents trying to make a light bulb, like the guy failed 1080 times at it. So you know, the more exposure you get in the real world to training people and working with people, the better off you're going to be when um, it comes time to give results. And that's not to discredit things like research. I know you yourself have actually published quite a bit of research. But uh, it's also just to understand that research is under perfect circumstances almost every time there's specific inclusion and exclusion criteria. And you don't get that same luxury when working in a gym, you don't get to control, you know, every little factor. Uh, and while we didn't talk about them today, I know in the past, our podcast has talked about things like nutritional status and sleep and how all these other factors influence an athlete and their performance. So just understanding that while we're talking about speed in the training light, there's other things that go into it. Because obviously, if someone's not sleeping, if someone's not eating properly, if they're not fueling their body, or on the other side, maybe they're eating too much, maybe they're overtrained, maybe they slept 10 hours last night, you can overdo things as well. And that can have an adverse outcome. So is that anything just kind of a closing uh, point here is that anything that you address in your speed training as well do you address those kind of other factors or do you keep it almost exclusive to the training side of things yeah th th those are definitely conversations that, that we open up not to cross lines of scope of practice but just to increase awareness right so in in training i guess i'll i'll give some context to it so 95 percent or better of our best we consider a high quality speed rep we get that number from probably Francis, Derek Hansen. So if someone's PR is a 100, they're from a 100 to 105 to be a high quality, high intensity, high neural stimulus speed rep, because not every day you're going to PR, there's some variability in human movement. So it's nice that we have a range and a threshold as opposed to like a hard number. So when educating athletes about that number, or when they get discouraged, we call it PR-itis. You know, if it's not a PR, they just freak out, mm -hmm. believe it or not, some athletes do that. And we, we say, what are all the factors that have to go into running a PR? Sleep, nutrition, just is your body ready to go? Is your mental state ready? How much training did you do the last few days? Well, what happens if one of those is off, if two of those is off? So it's been interesting to tie some of those things outside the facility into how it affects in the facility. But it was, uh, it was funny. There was a, a high school basketball player of mine. Uh, she's just skinny, just small, small freshman. She trains a lot. She's a high-level basketball player. She she plays 17U and she's 14. And every day, I'm like, what do you have for breakfast? Because every day, it's nothing. And then it was like maybe like two weeks into it. She's like, why do you keep asking me that? And I was like, why do you think? And she's like, because <laughs> it's important, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I think it's it's important because we have this really relevant goal of faster that that's why the athlete's there, but then we can justify that conversation. Oh, what'd you have for breakfast? Like I, I had two, two like eighth grade boys. It was like a Saturday, last session of the day, it was like 4 PM and we're about halfway through and they're kind of just like slumped over, like on the, on the, the, the jump boxes. Um, and then I'm like, are you guys okay? They're like, yeah, we're just a little tired. I'm like, what'd you guys have for, for lunch? Like nothing. I'm like, what'd you guys have for breakfast? They're like nothing. I'm like, dude, it's, it's four o'clock. We're doing this, like anything, this high intensity, you know, like speed training session, like, you know, like we're going to get nothing out of this workout. So, so it's, it's nice because we have that end goal or that end product, and then we can tie it back into, you know, sleep, nutrition, all that stuff. Now I don't, I don't prescribe anything to eat. I don't do anything like that. I give tips on how to sleep better. You know, we do have a sports dietitian that we refer out to, but um, I guess lastly, kind of building on that, going back to the previous thing is it's one thing to read in textbooks, the importance about nutrition, sleep, all that stuff. But what do you do when, when you have that freshman that just got cut from the high school sport team and you have to try to get them on board that those things are important, you know, right. or when we talk about injury reduction, well, what happens when 
you have an athlete freshman in high school just broke their fibula they're eight weeks out the doctor said that they're good to go you try to call the doctor and they don't answer give you a call back not that that happened to me or, or anything <laughs> so it's, it's one thing to say i understand sleep nutrition return to play all that stuff but it's one thing to do it live because what do you learn in the classroom there's going to be some themes and consistencies and commonalities, but all the specific X's and O's you can like, I, I couldn't even make up if I tried. So mm -hmm. I think, think that there's so much to be said about having been there, done that, have some stories that you can talk about. And then just, if you believe in something, do it all out. But as soon as you're, you're over it, you know, discard it and learn again. Definitely. I, um, I really like that you bring that up and I think this speaks volumes too, as to how athletics and sports in general are very transformative experiences for people and they lead them to healthy lifestyle habits that maybe they wouldn't have developed otherwise, uh, whether that be training or sleep or nutrition. And that's largely to people like you, you know, if you don't have good coaches that are looking out for and caring for the development of the athletes, then they're not going to develop as people because all these things that we've mentioned training sleep nutrition and so on they have other impacts outside of just training that impact someone's daily life their mood their energy what they do so this is where athletics really kind of carries over to life in general and i think you talk to any athlete and they'll tell you you know athletics changed my life or you know it got me through this time or that time or it helped me through this so it's, it's amazing to me how, you know, just having a proper coach and a, a good coach who really cares for you, such as yourself, when you're training your athletes, you go above and beyond for them, you know, to the point where you're getting extra knowledge through certifications and courses that most people wouldn't even bother with, right? You know, hey, I have a degree, I have my certification, what else do I need? You're going above and beyond to deliver for them. And that's what leads to, you know, positive outcomes, not just in the short term, but for life. So really appreciate everything that you've shared and brought while talking about speed and overall athletic development, Matt. Is there anything else that you'd like to share or close on? Um, athletes are, athletes are an, an incredible opportunity to, to, to give back. Like, I mean, I, I opened this podcast saying if, if I didn't have the opportunity to play college sports, you know, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't be where, where I'm now. But um, athletes can be frustrating at times, believe it or not, but, um, it's really not about the, the, the training and stuff, like whether it's on my own podcast or conversations I have with my athletes in real life, whether it's, you know, coaches or, or athletes, no one ever references, Oh, I got my, my, my back squat from this to this, or my flying time from this to this. They always talk about just the great times they had and stuff like that. And yes, the X's and O's. Oh, so I guess I'll end on this. This is what <laughs> I always say. This is what I always say. The X's and O's are why we're here but that's not really what it's about. So use those X's and O's to open that door, open that conversation, but understand that the most value that you can give isn't really that, you know, getting someone faster, that's my minimum. If I'm receiving money, I should get you faster, but how can you over deliver, give them more value? So use the X's and O's to open up those conversations, but then, you know, kind of over deliver on, on everything else. Definitely makes a lot of sense. And if you over deliver, you're always going to exceed their expectations. So mm -hmm. Matt, with that, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this knowledge with us. Uh, for people who want to reach out to you, get a hold of you and stay up to date uh, with everything that you're doing, how can they get a hold of you or follow you? Fantastic. So the, the most frequent stuff I use is Instagram and Twitter, Coach B-I-G-T-O-E, Coach Big Toe. <laughs> Where'd that um, name come from? <laughs> So my last name is Tometz, and then my dad, his license plate, so he was called every variation of Toe growing up, and then his license plate was Big Toe. My mom's was Mrs. Toe when they got married. And then <laughs> I, have a, I have a twin brother. He's a little bit shorter. We're fraternal, but we're boys. So I'm like the, the taller, older, bigger one. So I'm Big Toe, and he was Little Toe growing up. So then he got, <laughs> he got his car, and he got Little Toe as his license plates. And then uh, everyone called my dad, Mr. Toe. So my mom made him give me the big toe plates and he's Mr. Toe. So those are, <laughs> if you ever see, if you ever see any variation of toe driving around, that's probably one me or one of my family members. So kind of a, a, a nickname, just a, a, a little bit different of a, of an Insta handle. So Insta Twitter, I have a, a website that I definitely don't use as much as I should as every probably 
person in this field does. It's important to get a website, but that's just matttomets.com. Trying to grow my YouTube channel, Matt Tomets. I'm on LinkedIn as well, Matt Tomets. So, you know, I, I love talking about this stuff. Like we just did this over an hour and I'm sure we could keep going for an, an, another hour, but thank you for the, for the opportunity, for the awesome content. I know your listener gets a lot out of your stuff and, um, and yeah, this was great. Yeah. Thank you again, Matt. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Brown Body Podcast. If you could, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. We have a great episode next week, our first ever charitable episode with Tony Miller of the American Heroes Foundation. This is kind of our Veterans Day special. You don't want to miss that one. Also, please, please help us out. Share our podcast with someone you know who would benefit from hearing the episodes that we're putting out every week. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Body. And last, huge thank you again to Matt, Coach Big Toe. We'll see you next week.